book of Exodus 19. Exodus chapter 19 in the Word of God. And the children can be dismissed right now for junior church. All the children can be dismissed. I do hope that if you're here this morning and your head is bowed low, that you'll turn to Jesus. He's helped millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people over the years whose head was bowed low, and he'll help you today and lift your load and lighten your burden. He's, he's a master at that. In fact, he's the only one that can really do it, and he's got a monopoly on the market, so I just quit searching all over everywhere and go to him because you won't be disappointed if you'll go to Jesus. Thank you for being here today. It's such a blessing to me to see churches that are onward and forward and moving for the Lord. We're just uh, sitting here, uh, Audra and I, and uh, Audra said, Daddy, last week the church met in the gym, and this week the church is meeting in the gym that's good. And I said, you got that right. I said, that's real good. And that's not bad for a five-year-old perceiving that that's good. And uh, praise the Lord. It just was a blessing to me to stand back there and just see everybody gather today. I remember coming here back in 2011 for the first time, meeting over in the old church and uh, watching the Lord work mightily. And it's such a blessing to stay faithful to the Lord and to stay faithful to good friends, godly friends. And to see the Lord work, I would imagine 15 years ago that uh, Pastor Monday and maybe even some here would have never thought this would be possible. But thank the Lord, God is still on the throne and he's still working and moving. And if God's called you to a place, you stay in that place until the Lord says otherwise. And and you just keep on plowing and planting and watch the Lord work. And he's going to do something mighty. Let's pause for a moment and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time, shall we, Father? We bow before you this morning, a desperately needy people. I need you as I preach to have your wisdom. I need your strength and your power and your anointing. And these, my listeners, need your wisdom and power and anointing as they hear the word of God. And then, Lord, all of us need that wisdom and power and anointing and really courage once we've heard the word of God, to respond rightly to it. Lord, help us to see this as an opportunity that has come our way to hear a message from the word of God. We heard such a wonderful message in the Sunday school hour that challenged and strengthened and encouraged us. Lord, help us not to let this opportunity from Sunday school and this opportunity from the morning service pass us by. Help us when we hear the word of God and Holy Spirit, when you speak to us, Help us, Lord, to respond in a right way. And Lord Jesus, we'll be careful to thank you for what you do because we ask this in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. It was Lake Placid, New York. The year was 1980 when a moment passed by in American history, at least American sports history, that most people wondered, where did that come from? And most people asked, wait. What just happened? The Soviet Union had won the gold medal in five of the six previous Winter Olympic Games in hockey. And they were the favorites to win once more at Lake Placid. The team had consistently, primarily of professional players with significant experience in international play. And by contrast, the United States team, led by coach Herb Brooks, was composed mostly of amateur players with only four players with minimal minor league experience. The United States had the youngest team in the tournament and in the U.S. national team history. In the group stage, both the Soviet and the U.S. teams were unbeaten. The U.S. achieved several surprising results, including a 2-2 draw against Sweden and a 7-3 upset victory over second-place favorite Czechoslovakia. For the first game in the medal round, the United States played the Soviets, finishing the first period tied at 2-2, and the Soviets leading 3-2 following the second. The U.S. team scored two more goals to take their first lead midway in the third and final period, then held on and won 4-3. 
Two days later, the U.S. won the gold medal by beating Finland in their final game. The Soviet Union took the silver medal by beating Sweden. The victory became one of the most iconic moments of the games and in U.S. sports history. Equally well-known was the television call of the final seconds of the game by Al Michaels for ABC, in which he declared, Do you believe in miracles? Yes. I believe most people could look at that moment in U.S. history, sports history, and even look back, and as they watch the game unfold, or maybe as they watch the movie made after those events, and they would say, wait, wait, what just happened? I would like this morning to take you to three specific places in the Bible, and I believe that we could ask that question when those moments unfold, and we would say, wait, what just happened? The first is in Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse number 3. Exodus chapter 19 and verse number 3. And the Bible says in this passage of Scripture that Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I have, uh, and how I have you uh, bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then, then, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation." These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Watch verse 12. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. This was one of those moments in Israel's history when people stood in awe. They stood in awe of God. In just a few chapters, they're going to stand in awe of God's law. And they're going to watch as Moses gives them the law and the Ten Commandments. And as God gave it to Moses. Moses is going to go up into the next chapter and he's going to give these laws to the to the people of Israel. Notice Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. It says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Moses begins to give, or God begins to give to Moses with his finger writing on a tablet of stone. God is writing down the law. And he gives the Ten Commandments, the moral law, upon which all of the law would be built and from which all of the law would come. He comes to Exodus chapter 20 and he says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse number, uh, verse number 14, notice what he says. He says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now it was here in this day and in this moment uh, when about 13, 1600 to 1300 some historians project that Moses was given the law of God and it was so somber, it was so serious 
that when they made their camp with the tabernacle in the center and they set it about and they made their camp, God gave the law to Moses and he said, no one is to come to the mount where I'm giving you the law. If anybody does come to the mount, they'll die, they'll be shot through, or they'll be and everyone in Israel on that day stood in awe of the law of God. And they stood in awe of the lawgiver. It was a holy moment. It was a somber moment. And amongst the law that God gave, he gave commandment number seven. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now I don't want us just to consider for a moment the law. There were several other laws that were given. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Uh, thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Uh, the Bible tells us in, in, in the book of uh, Exodus chapter 20, he said he gave the commandment number six. See, we got this thing going on. Commandment number six, thou shalt not kill. Commandment number eight, thou shalt not uh, bear, thou shalt not steal. Commandment number nine, thou shalt not uh, bear false witness. And commandment number ten, thou shalt not covet. But right in the middle of all the law, he gave this commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, this was God's law. This was a sober law. Now someone said that baseball, the America's pastime, has been replaced by adultery. And they might be right. They might be right. Adultery is fed, spoon-fed to our kids in the public schools, no less. And anybody teaching and encouraging that amongst young people ought to be fired at the very least. Then adultery is encouraged on Hollywood and TV. And it is, it is the acceptable kind of sin. Everybody seems to do it. If you don't like your wife or your husband, you can just trade them in for a newer model. And adultery is something that God condemns in the law. He knew that to keep a society and a culture to together, there needed to be a commitment in the level of marriage, a commitment that is unbroken and that is kept pure and holy. So it was God who gave the law. I want you to consider just a few points this moment, morning and just a few moments this morning. First, the giving of the law. This is the law. God spoke it in an Exodus chapter or Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 10. He said, whosoever would break this law and whosoever would commit adultery would be worthy of death. I would say that if God made the law and God gave the consequence, then God is giving us the truth when it comes to this matter of adultery. doesn't matter if Hollywood is for it. doesn't matter if every senator is for it. It doesn't matter if it's done at the highest levels of the land or the lowest levels of the land. doesn't matter if it's on the silver screen. It's still a breach of God's law. And when the children of Israel had this moment come before them that they could not even come to the mountain, a fence was built up around the mountain while Moses was on the mountain receiving the law from the God, God of heaven and the creator of the universe, this was a moment when people would stand back for years to come and they would say, do you remember when God gave the law? Now I want you to jet ahead in your Bible, if you would, to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we find another amazing moment that happens in the history of of Israel. There is a constant and a growing strife between, between the Pharisees and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 7 and 8, it's no different. In John chapter 7, there was a great controversy that was going on in this passage of Scripture between the Pharisees and Jesus. In fact, it comes to the end of John chapter 7, and they're having a meeting about Jesus. And Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. And the Pharisees turn to him and say, are you one of his disciples? Have you also believed? Well, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. And I don't think there's any book between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where that conflict is accentuated more than, than it is in the book of John. And John chapter 7 and 8 and 9 are some of the epitomes, uh, uh, epitome chapters of when the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees takes place. Now in John chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. 
Jesus has just been the subject of the Sanhedrin in a few verses earlier. Jesus, the night before, was brought up for question. The Pharisees don't know what to do with Jesus. They're very upset with him because he's claiming a different authority. And he's, he's doing something that nobody has ever done. When the officers in John chapter 7 come to him, the Pharisees, did you bring him? And they said, no. And they said, why? They said, never a man spake like this man. They said, this man speaks as one having authority, not as the Pharisees. So the Pharisees didn't like that. And now the Pharisees are going to, 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 they're going to set their trap. Verse number 2, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Do you see this? I want you just to see a few things this morning. Number one, I want you to see the climate. The climate. Would you say that with me, please? The climate. The climate now where Jesus is and while Jesus is on this earth and in the early stages of his ministry is a hostile climate. You have a lot of people pushing for the place of authority. The, of course, the Romans are politically. The Jews don't like that, and so they're pushing for a place of authority, and they're pushing back, and then boom, here bursting on the scene is Jesus Christ claiming ultimate authority and doing things that nobody has ever seen before and claiming things that nobody has ever claimed before. And the Pharisees don't like that, so this is the climate. But number two, I want you to notice the crime. Would you notice the crime? Would you say that with me? The crime. Would you say it again? The crime. The crime has been committed. In fact, it was a crime of adultery. Notice again, verse number three. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now there's a lot of things I think about with this situation. Some could argue that she was a brazen adulteress and they went and found her in the red light district of this area and they caught her in the act. I personally believe it's very likely they set her up. That means they were not only, that, that, that means it's possible that not only were they the accusers, but they were the guilty all at the same time. Do you know one of Hitler's henchmen said, accuse your enemy of what you yourself are guilty of. Remember this, that the accuser is what the accuser claims. And what the accuser accuses of, he is himself guilty of. Oftentimes, that's the case. And they're drawing attention to it. They don't like Jesus. This isn't really about adultery. And it's not really about the law. And it's not really about this adulteress. It's about Jesus and the fact that they hate him. You say, how do you know them? How do you know that? Verse number uh, 4, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. You see, they not only want to accuse this guilty adulteress, and they want to accuse Jesus. They're mad at Jesus. And by the way, religion has never gotten over its anger at Jesus. Religion is still angry at Jesus. Religion without the Bible as the only foundation and Jesus as the only Savior is still at odds with Jesus. And they don't like the fact that he comes with a different, uh, with a different way. They don't like the fact that he comes with a different power. They don't like the fact that he comes with a different authority. They're angry at Jesus and upset at Jesus. And just for the record, it was religion that nailed Jesus to the cross. And here you have them the captains of their religion, and they've come along. I want you to not only notice the climate and the crime, I want you to notice the consequence. They said in verse number 5, Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? There's a consequence that is to, to be had. This woman is to be taken. I want to ask, where's the man? Mm. They, if they caught him in the very act, then they, 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 they let the man go? How does he get a pass? And by the way, I want to go on public record and say, I don't ascribe to the mindset or the philosophy, and neither does any godly person here, that the women have to behave and the men can behave like barnyard animals. That's wicked and straight out of hell, and is certainly something that's promoted in society, and sadly sometimes promoted amongst religion. 
What do you have here? You have a consequence that they're pointing to. And what were they pointing to? Exodus chapter 20, Leviticus chapter 20. That moment when God and all of his holiness and all of his grandeur and all of his, and all of his righteousness demanded that no one can even approach the mountain, much less touch the mountain. And anybody that did would be shot through. And anybody that broke some of these laws would be shot through or stoned. And all they're doing is appealing to the law. And now watch, they're trying to make a conflict between what Jesus says and what the law says. You know what this tells me? It tells me they weren't really listening to Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus was the one that said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Do you know what they heard when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount? This is what they heard. They heard, ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, thou shalt not hate your brother. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. They heard when Jesus said, thou, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. You know what they heard? They heard, Jesus is talking about the law, but he's coming up with a new law. He wasn't coming up with a new law. He was just reinforcing the old law with a law that was even deeper than what was stated in the law. And so now they're trying to make a conflict. Always put a question mark over someone that puts a question mark over the Bible. Always. Never trust them. Never trust them. Now comes along the Pharisees and they say, You've heard that it's been said, but what's, what do you say? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Hmm. I wonder what he wrote. Don't you? Do you know the Bible doesn't say what he wrote? Maybe he wrote the law. Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Maybe he wrote the law, Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and Leviticus chapter 20, Whosoever does should be put to death. We don't know how long Jesus was writing in the sand, and we don't know exactly what he wrote. Maybe he wrote the name of this woman. Boy, they're coming for her. They're wanting to brand a scarlet A right on her forehead and make her wear it right on her chest. They're gunning for her. We don't know exactly what he wrote. Maybe when he, they saw him write the name of that woman, if that's what he wrote, maybe they were all glad with glee. Yes, yes, yes. Now we're not only going to get her, but we're going to accuse him because we think that he's trying to teach us something contrary to the law. And then maybe Jesus began to write the names of those that were involved in this sinister trap. Maybe he wrote the names of all the scribes and Pharisees that were actually there with stones in their hands. And maybe next to them, he wrote specific sins that they themselves were guilty of. They were gunning for him. I want you to notice the, the consequence was death. The consequence was to be stoned. But I want you to notice number four. I want you to notice the condemnation. Look at what our text says. John chapter number eight. And notice please what the Bible says in verse number nine and verse number eight, seven. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them. You see, they're not just standing there with a copy of the law. In fact, they'd long since forgotten what that looked like they'd covered it up with their tradition they were standing there with this woman thrown down i mean you and i think we're standing right here at the taliban everybody's got stones in their hands they've got stones ready to crush this woman to death and they're asking him and taunting him and jesus isn't playing their game according to their rules now there's going to be real condemnation. He stands up after he's done writing and he looks at them and he speaks. Aren't you interested in what the lawgiver says? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And maybe he writes some more names of those that were implicated in this particular crime. And maybe he begins to, begins to list their crimes. We don't know exactly what he wrote in the sand, but what he said stunned them. They come along to bring accusation. 
They come along to bring confusion. They come along to not only accuse the guilty, the woman caught in the act of adultery, but they come along to accuse the guiltless, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now all of them are left with the words of Jesus. Look at verse number, verse number 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Wow. What just happened? These Pharisees and scribes were ready to stone her. Maybe they had some of their own men who were ready to stone him. They had just condemned Jesus as guilty in the chapter previous, and they would condemn him as guilty in the chapter following. They would call him an illegitimate son. They would call him, for more or less, a bastard. They would call, uh, they would call him uh, working in the power of Satan and accuse him of a whole lot of things. Do you know Jesus was accused of a whole lot of things, folks? He was accused of being a wine bibber. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. He was accused of, being, uh, of doing things in the power of Satan. He was accused of a lot of things, but I like one accusation that sticks with Jesus, and that is he was a friend of sinners. Jesus is still a friend of sinners. That means he's your friend, and that means he's my friend, and now Jesus is standing in the presence of this woman, and she is in her presence. She is in his presence, verse number uh, nine. They're all walking out. From the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones, their th stones thud to the ground. They were expecting them to thud into the skull and the chest cavity of this woman and then drag her body out and give her a shameful barrier. But no, no, now their th stones are thudding to the ground and they're sl slinking out of there. They don't want any part of this. Jesus knows everything about them and he's the one who is the lawgiver. And with the finger that he wrote in those Ten Commandments in the tablets of stone back in Exodus 20, now he's writing in the sand and he's writing their sins quite possibly. He knows we're out of here. They were convicted by their own conscience. Verse number 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? He said, I want you to see that in every situation there are those who are lawbreakers. There are those who think themselves as law keepers. And the law keepers usually want to bring condemnation on the law breakers. But if we're not careful, we'll forget what the lawgiver actually has to say about the matter. And he says, all of us are guilty. Read Romans 1 and 2. Romans 1 and 2 says all the law breakers, all those Gentiles are law breakers. Romans chapter 2 says all those Jews are law breakers. Romans chapter 3 says just in case we missed anybody, you're all a bunch of law breakers. And there's no hope for you and there's no help for you outside of Jesus Christ and the cross and the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. There's no hope for any of us because we're all a bunch of lawbreakers. And so now the Lord Jesus Christ says, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? I wonder what she sounded like when she spoke verse number 11. She said, No man, Lord. No man, Lord. Where are they? They're not here. No man has condemned you. No man, Lord. I wonder what she thought is going to happen now. Maybe he's going to call for a new group of people to be stoning him. Maybe he, she thought he's going to be the one that condemns her. You know what she did? Somewhere between verse number 10 and verse number 11, she put her faith in the Lord. <laughs> she called upon the Lord. This is somebody that got saved and didn't pray a sinner's prayer. But in their heart, they called on the name of the Lord. Somewhere along the line, between verse number 10 and verse number 11, she got saved. You say, how do I know this? Well, read verse 11 and you'll see. She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus never would have said, go and sin no more to someone that hadn't believed on him. He would never have done that. Otherwise, it would be work salvation that gets us into heaven. He said, go and sin no more to her. And it is assumed with a strong word that she got saved because she had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, no man is here to condemn you. No man, Lord. No man, Lord. You see, we find the lawbreaker here broken. Don't you look around and see all the adultery and fornication going on in our society and say, this thing is broken. 
I mean, look, in the last year, I know of two preachers, now a third one, who have left their spouse to commit adultery. That's broken. I know of family after family after family that has had their life and their family completely destroyed by adultery and fornication. That's broken. Hey, young person, don't let Hollywood glamorize it to you, making you think it's all that in a bag of chips. It's nothing but a cesspool. It's broken. It's messed up. And it leaves in its wake a trail of tears. It's broken. It leaves children trying to figure out what happened between mom and dad. And who's this other person? It leaves them asking questions for years. And Sometimes it sends them over the precipice repeating the same wicked adultery that everybody else has done. And so there's generational curse that goes from one to the next. If you're here this morning, sir, and you're committing adultery, you need to get on your face and plead for God's mercy because you're going down a path of brokenness. Ma'am, if you're here committing adultery, you need to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. It's brokenness in every situation. There's a lawbreaker. There's brokenness in every situation. There are a few law keepers and they want to present themselves as, as the righteous ones. They're condemning everybody else around as if they've never sinned in their life. And, and any one of us can fall into that trap in any position and in any place. But all of us are broken before a holy God. And all of us have sinned in one form or fashion. And all of us find ourselves ground level at the foot of the cross. But in every situation, there's the sweet Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's riding in the sand. Not playing the games of the Pharisees or the scribes. In every situation, there's the sweet Lord Jesus who stands up and says, Where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? And is there no man that condemns me, condemns thee? And she says, No man, Lord. And here he is offering and extending complete forgiveness. He says, Neither do I condemn thee. What? Preacher, is that possible to have sweet forgiveness and no condemnation from Jesus? Yes. John 5 and verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You see, the place of no condemnation isn't just going to church and it isn't being good and it isn't the baptismal pool and it isn't turning over a new leaf or catechism or confirmation or, or christening. It isn't any of that. It is trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's coming to Jesus saying, I'm guilty, Lord. I deserve judgment. I need salvation and I'm looking to you as my only Savior. Wow, what just happened? Every one of us would stand in this moment and see this thing unfold with the Pharisees and scribes bringing this woman before Jesus and throwing her down in a heap and grabbing stones and getting everybody else to grab stones and waiting for the words of Jesus so they can accuse him and her and waiting to stone her. And Jesus says, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. And that hits them like a ton of bricks. And they drop their stones and walk out. And the woman is left crying and weeping and stunned. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? Is there no man that condemns thee? And she says, no man. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Now I want to ask, have you come to the place in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as the lawgiver and the only one that can save you? You see, I want to bring you to a third moment. Would you turn to John chapter 19? John chapter 19, I'm sure that when the Israelites stood around the mountain with a fence just built and Moses receiving the law and the thunder and the lightning and the cloud clapping around the top of the mountain and Moses receiving the law, I'm sure that was a moment that happened and the people of God just stood in awe and said, what is happening? I'm sure that when the people witnessing this event where the Pharisees brought this woman and dragged her before Jesus hoping that he would pronounce condemnation and waiting for him to so they could pronounce condemnation on him, I'm sure that when the whole thing turned around the other way and the Pharisees walked out condemned and convicted by their own conscience and this adulterous woman walked out forgiven by the Lord Jesus, I'm sure people thought, wait, what just happened? But in John chapter 19, a similar moment takes place and unfolds in history. The Bible says in verse number 1, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. 
And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. I want to agree with Pilate on this point. Neither do I. Verse number 3. Verse number five, then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, behold the man. And when the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, take ye him and crucify him for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Later in verse 13, Pilate is going to bring Jesus before them and he says in verse 14, it was the preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour and he saith unto the Jews, behold your king king and now they're going to take him to the cross now he's been bloodied beyond recognition already now from his neck all the way down to his knees his back has been laid bare and flesh has been ripped off with a cat of nine tails now now they've plated a crown of thorns and pounded it down on his head until blood is flowing all over his face. Now they've wrapped around him a blindfold and pummeled him and beaten him with their fists and pulled the beard from his face. Now they've dragged him down the Rio Della Rosa and he carries the crossbeam of the cross and they tie it and tether it in place and they lay him down and for you and for me his hands were nailed to the cross and his feet were nailed to the cross. The Romans excellent executioners as they were would lift that cross with his weight on it in the air shimmy it over to a six foot hole let it come down with a thud and his bones would pull out of joint he said in Psalm 22 all my bones look and stare upon me. There they would mock him. There they would scorn him. There they would gamble over his garments at the foot of the cross. And there Jesus Christ would bleed and hang and die. And the soldiers and the centurion that crucified the Lord Jesus and had crucified dozens and possibly hundreds before him and would after him never saw something happen on this account. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, four miracles took place, the likes of which cannot be explained outside of the hand of God. First, the noonday sun turned to midnight black. Second, an earthquake began to erupt around the cross, and some believe the world over. Third, the graves of the bodies of those that had died trusting Christ rose again and visited their family. And fourth, the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. Nothing has happened before like this, and nothing has happened since like this. And that would cause the centurion to look at Jesus and hear his words, not of condemnation, not of judgment. Christ Jesus came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He came to save you. He knows all about you. He knows all the details of your sin and mine, and yet he loves us just the same. Jesus came to save us. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, and just like he came then, he is here now, the risen Son of God who didn't stay in the grave but rose three days later so that he could rescue us from our sins, and I'm sure that the Pharisees and the scribes and the disciples and the political leaders of the day after Jesus died and after he rose again stood shaking their head and rubbing their face saying wait what just happened I'll tell you what happened Jesus happened forgiveness happened offering forgiveness for the whole world happened salvation from hell happened a rescue to heaven happened I'll tell you what happened an opportunity to be saved happened and that opportunity is afforded to you and to me this morning and all we must do is call upon him and he'll save us he said whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved all we must do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we're saved the Bible says that if thou Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Today, today you can stand before the Lord Jesus Christ with your slate completely wiped clean. It can only happen through the one with the nail-pierced hands. Years ago, my brother, I have two brothers older than me, and one brother doesn't know how to drive. 
Now, some people think that about me, but uh, I can tell you my brother is way worse. And so uh, he got all kinds of tickets. In fact, he had his license revoked. I've never had my license revoked, but he has. And I can say it because he's not here to defend himself. And so he had his license revoked. His wife had to take him to work. How humiliating, how embarrassing. But anyway, he had a terrible, terrible record. And as far as I know, drinking and drugs wasn't involved. I don't understand it either. Anyway, so he had his license revoked, and, and finally he got it reinstated. And one day he was downtown Minneapolis, and he was driving near where they issue licenses and where he had to go through some of the legalities of all this. And he said, you know, I'm going to stop in. I just want to see a list of all my tickets. So he walked in. He went to the lady at the desk. He said, my name's Dan Smith. He said, this is the situation. He said, I just like, could you print out, could you just print out a list of all my tickets? She said, what's your name? What's your social security number? What's your birth date? She typed all that information in there. She looked at the screen. She said, there's nothing here. He said, wait, 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 wait a second. He said, I know I got all kinds of tickets. I mean, for goodness sakes, not very long ago, I had my license taken away, and I've had it reinstated. He, he said, he said uh, that can't be. She turned the screen. She said, look right here. She said, you don't have anything on your record. When my brother told me that, he said, I felt like it was when I got saved. Jesus took all my sins, past, present, and future, and he wiped them away and pushed the delete button. And Jesus is ready to take away and lift all that condemnation against you. You see, here's the compassion of the Savior. He says, if any man will come unto me, come after me, he'll be saved. He said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. There's never been a sinner in the history of the world that's come to Jesus and been turned away. And my friend, you won't be the first. If you'll come to him today, he'll take all your record and wipe it clean. And he'll never bring it up again. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to thank you for your attention to the Bible this morning. We know that we have a holy God. That gave us the law. It must have been an awesome thing to watch as God gave the law to Moses. We know we have a wonderful Savior who said to this lady who was caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And we know he's a wonderful Savior because a few chapters later, he would go to the cross and die, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. I wonder with your heads bowed and your eyes closed today if you'd say, Brother Dwight, I, I, I know that I'm saved. There's some things you were preaching this morning about that, that God convicted my heart concerning. You said, Preacher, I know I'm saved, but there's something in my life that I need to get right. Would you pray for me that I'd confess it and forsake it? If that's you, would you slip up your hand and say, Preacher, pray for me. I know I'm saved, but there's some things I need to get right. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Several. Thank the Lord. Some of you were here in Sunday school, and my, what an incredible message we heard about getting rid of our grave clothes and, and living for the Lord Jesus and letting the Lord Jesus bring us, bring us out of the deadness of sin and apathy. Question number two I want to ask, how many of you said, Brother Smith, I'm saved and on my way to heaven, but as you were speaking this morning, God touched my heart about someone that needs to hear this message that Jesus wants to take away all the condemnation against us. And I don't know if they're saved, but would you pray with me that in the next few weeks, even towards Thanksgiving and Christmas, they would come to Jesus and be saved and that God would use me. If that's you, you said, Preacher, I'm saved, but this morning God laid someone on my heart that needs to hear this message of no condemnation. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? Many, many, praise the Lord. Well, I hope you'll get them here this week. They're going to hear preaching from the Word of God and they're going to have opportunities to get saved. I hope you'll get them here this week. Question number three, how many of you without doubt and hesitation can say, Preacher, there's some things I don't know, but there's one thing I do know. If I died today, I'd go to heaven. I remember the day that Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I remember when he saved me, and I can tell you of the time and when I trusted Christ. I know, not wish or hope or think, I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. Now, if you don't know that, it won't help you or me to raise your hand. But if you say, preacher, I know that I'm saved and on my way to heaven, I've been born again and I'm on my way to heaven. If that's you, would you slip your hand up high right now as a testimony to that fact? 
Many, many all across the room. Now, there are several here this morning that I saw couldn't raise their hand. Oh, oh, what a moment this is. What an opportunity that you have right now to accept Jesus. And we believe that you can trust him right here, right today, right where you sit. Here's the thing. If you need to be saved and you couldn't raise your hand just now, you can be saved right where you sit. You just simply need to admit that you're a guilty sinner before God. No one ever gets to heaven pleading not guilty. Two, you must believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And through his work, by dying on the cross and rising again, he's the only one that can save you. And you believe on that. You believe on him. Three, you must call upon him. And when you call upon him and cry out, Lord Jesus, I'm a guilty sinner. I need a savior. Instantly, he'll save you. Now, if you're someone this morning that say, Brother Dwight, I could not now just raise my hand. I do not know for sure that I'm going to heaven, but I would like to know right where you sit, you can bow your head and ask Jesus to save you. And if you want to be saved and want this condemnation that is gunning for you and coming against you right now to be lifted forever, you can bow your heart before the Lord Jesus. Pray right now right where you sit and and say something like this to the Lord. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a guilty sinner. And I don't deserve your forgiveness. But I know you died And shed your blood for me. And I know you rose again on the third day. And right now, I'm trusting in you alone to be my Savior. Come into my heart and wash away my sin. And save me. In Jesus' name. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, if you're here just now and you say, Preacher, I could not just a moment ago raise my hand saying, I know I'm going to heaven, but just now I called upon the name of the Lord and I asked him to save me. If that's you, with no one looking but Pastor and I, if that's you, would you just lift your hand right now? Say, Preacher, I just asked the Lord Jesus to save me. Just lift it up and keep it up just for a moment. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anybody else along with these four or five? Say, preacher, I just prayed and I asked the Lord Jesus to save me. Good. Now, if you just prayed and asked the Lord Jesus to save me, save you, I want you to look right up at me for just a moment. Just right up here for just a moment. Did you mean that? Did you mean that here on the aisle? Did you mean that over here on my left? Did you mean that? All right. Now, if you just prayed and asked the Lord Jesus to save you, he did. He didn't kind of save you. He didn't somewhat save you. He completely saved you. The Bible calls it saved to the uttermost. That means he took all the sins that were leveled against you moments ago, and he wiped them away and buried them in the deepest part of the sea. That means he sealed your name in the book of life. That means that when you die, you have an absolute reservation in heaven, and nothing can ever change that. And I want to rejoice with you. In a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to give an opportunity for people to come down to this altar and get right to respond to what we heard in Sunday school and in the morning service. And when we do, I want to encourage you, four or five or six that just raised your hand, to come take pastor by the hand. We'll have someone take you privately with a Bible while people are getting ready for the meal and give you verses of help and assurance. I want to say this. There's nothing in this world more important than what you just did. And I'm thankful to the Lord that he just saved you. Let's stand, shall we? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Father, I thank you that getting saved is so easy. And I thank you that you made it so. And I thank you for these four or five, maybe six, maybe others that I couldn't see that just prayed and asked you to save them. Now, Lord Jesus, I pray that they would understand you didn't somewhat save them. You saved them to the uttermost just now. And they're on their way to heaven. Help them to come during this invitation as Paul and Sarah play and sing. And help them, Lord, to come and get some verses of help and assurance. And Lord, there may be others, there may be several others here this morning that have not trusted Christ. Help them to come to you. 
And I pray this in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. The altar is open and the pianist is playing. God spoken to your heart. If you said, preacher, I just prayed and asked the Lord to save you. Save me. I want you to leave your seat and come and take pastor by the hand. There are others that are glad to help you. If you need to get right, you come. Come on. Come on. From wherever you're sitting. Sitting. Come on. And sin is plunged beneath that flood Whose walls a guilty stains Whose walls a guilty stains Whose walls a guilty stains And sin is plunged Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I want to encourage you right now in this invitation. No one's looking around except Pastor. Brother Paul is singing. You need to get right with God. You just prayed and asked the Lord Jesus to save you. You come. Make that public. Don't be ashamed. This is the most important decision you could ever make. There's nothing to be ashamed about. search the hearts of each one. Lord, I'm thankful that you love us and for what you did for us. And Lord, I thank you for each one who is here to hear this today, and I pray that they will know that and understand that, and that, Father, for those who are still just hesitant, that, Lord, you would uh, just continue to break their heart and show them that you're not here to judge them or condemn them. You are here to save them. And, Father, they would call on you and come to you and that, Lord, they would uh, share that with us and that, Lord, we can help them to grow. Help us, Father, to be what you want us to be. Lord, we, we love you and we thank you for what you've done for us. And I pray you continue to stir in our hearts, draw us to you. I pray that you use us greatly to reach our loved ones, our co-workers, our community. And, Lord, we just uh, find you be faithful in all areas, and Lord, we thank you for that. I pray that you continue to work in our lives, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.